Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message was given by Pastor Eric Ludy at the Church of Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. This message is certain to convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers. Simply contact us at www.ellerslie.com. We really would love to hear from you. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Those of you that's uh, sort of been following what we do here at Ellerslie, I had a, a guy who was down in a meeting in Florida, and he said, uh, how do you choose your sermons week after week? It doesn't seem like you're going through one book of the Bible. Uh, you're right. Uh, going through the Bible. Uh, I, every week, start out on my face before God saying, God, I want to give your heart to those that are going to be sitting in front of me on Sunday morning. And it's a wrestling match. If you're going through a book of the Bible, you sort of know ahead of time what your next verse is going to be. And that can be difficult too, because that next verse could be a doozy. And in my situation, the discomfort is a complete reliance on God to supply the content and the material to give to you. And it, but I have to be changed by it beforehand. If I'm not changed by the truth, if I'm not impacted by it, if I don't own it, nothing gets passed along to you. So I think it was Monday of this last week. I was on my knees. And for those of you that know, I like to march. You know, I, I spend far more time marching than I do on my knees. Same thing. But this was an on-the-knees prayer. And I was practicing what we talked about last Sunday, which was seeking the face of God. And I said, God, I want to know what your face is. I want to see it. And I want to prepare in light of it this week. And there were tears streaming down his face. It's sort of hard to describe that, I know. But... Tears streaming down the face of God. There was an ache. And I felt like I've been carrying that ache all week. In a very wonderful and beautiful way. Remember last week I was talking about when you see the face of God, then you know how to pray. Because you see his countenance, and then your countenance matches it. And so if he is smiling in perfect confidence, that's what you're attitude is. That's what your countenance should be. I don't care if bombs are dropping outside. I don't care if your bank account is empty. He's confident. You should be confident. Share the face of your king. Most of us don't spend our time focused on the face of our king, though. We're looking at our circumstances. We're looking at everything around us. We're staring at our bank account. We're staring at the politics of our age. And we're concerned. But when we stare at the face of our God and we see his serene countenance, he's not moved. There's no fear and anxiety and panic on the face of God. And that's what we share. However, if you stare at the face of God and you see his eyes going over to a weak one, a vulnerable one, an orphan, a widow, one that's lost, you follow his gaze. And by staring at his face, you know what his burden is. And then you have to carry it. And so there are moments in the Christian life of great delight. And there's moments of great agony. However... It's not a life of fear and panic. It's a life of perfect confidence in our God. But we are sharing in his countenance. And so that's last week we were talking about the six faces of prayer. And we were going through the six countenances of God, the six faces of God. And as a result, knowing how that affects our prayer life. Because we pray in light of what's on his face. And so when we come in our prayer time, it's not to 
you know, just brainstorm how we want to be praying. It's like, I think we should be praying about this. Go to God. Say, God, what is on your heart to pray? He's the one that wants to be praying. He wants to use us as vessels to pray forth his prayers in this earth. So this is a direct extension of that. And if I was going to describe it, it would be one of the most important things we must see, if not the most important thing we must see, each of us as individual Christians, is we must see the face of a father. When we go to our God, we must see the face of a father, which of course makes some of us a little uncomfortable because, to be honest, we don't want to see the face of another father in our life. Our father's face wasn't the best face to look at. It doesn't bring a cheer and a solace to our soul. It brings an anxiety, a panic, and a fear to our soul. I don't want to see the face of a father. However, the father we're describing here is the perfect father, the way a father ought to be. And when you see the face of your father, suddenly everything else has context. First of all, you feel secure in your own soul because you recognize the fact that that father cares for you. That that father so loved you that he gave his only son to rescue you. You need to see the face of a father, and that's what this message is on. It's not called the face of a father, but it's a direct outflow of that because that's what I felt on Monday I was seeing. I was being freshly reminded of the face of my father. A new generation of fathers. I would like to start with the notion, the hypotheses, if you will, that fatherhood in the previous generations has not been a demonstration of the kingdom of heaven on planet earth. Christian fatherhood has failed us in many regards. I'm not saying it's a blanket statement. I'm saying in a general way, we have lost the kingdom mentality towards fatherhood. And as a result, we have a lot of spiritual orphans in this world. We have a lot of people that have outright rejected Jesus Christ, outright rejected the fatherhood of God because of the fatherhood that they witnessed growing up. When you mess up fatherhood, you mess up kids. When you mess up kids, you mess up the kingdom of heaven. This is an important role. Now follow me on this. If you get fatherhood correct, you know what happens? Everything starts working. You see, fatherhood is just one of those key puzzle pieces. You know, if you're doing a puzzle and it has a face of someone in it, this is like the nose and the eyes. It's that one puzzle piece that just sort of puts it all together. Oh, there's, there's one. And you can build around it. That's the father. When you get the father correct, everything begins to come together. When you get the father wrong, everything falls apart. Your Christianity goes as your understanding of the Father goes. I'm going to propose today, it's like a call, a commission to each of us. Now, I know some of you are girls in here. I always have a good man message that comes out, and all the girls are like, how do I appropriate this? You know that there's no distinction in certain aspects of what we're going to talk about. We all need to see the Father. And we all need to behold the face of the Father. And we all need to express that face of the Father to the lost and the dying. I don't care if you're a girl or a guy in regards to that. We express the face of the Father. Remember what Jesus did? He fully expressed the Father. That's what he did. Well, Jesus is inside of you if you're a Christian. Therefore, you need to express the face of the Father, whether you're a guy or a girl. doesn't matter. But my commission is to the men, young and old, I'm calling for a new generation of fathers. I want to see this system turn on its head. I'm sick and tired of the mediocrity amongst men in Christianity. Sick and tired of it. 
I want to see men rise up and be men once again. If they can behold the face of the Father and begin to reflect that face, I tell you what, dominoes start falling and this world changes. Ab, the Hebrew word Ab, means father. You guys ever heard the term Abba? That's what most of us are familiar with. Well, that's the intimate name for Ab. It's like if you said dad and then you said daddy, it's the same thing. It's like Abba, Abi. Abba, okay? It's the intimate form of Ab. But Ab is the first word in the Hebrew language. This is where it all starts. This is the Genesis point. If you don't have the first word, you don't understand the rest of the language. You know what I love about this word? It is the first, well, I'll, I'll read it here. It's the first labial sounds of an infant. This is the first sounds that come out of a little baby. Isn't that extraordinary? And what's that the name of? God. But not just God. God is Father. Isn't that beautiful? Okay, well, just, just wait. How profound that is in the New Covenant. You guys remember what the first sounds of the new birth are? The spirit that is planted within us cries out. Hmm. Abba. Father. It's the first word in the Hebrew language is 1,215 usages, which is a massive amount of any word in the Bible. It's the first labial sounds of reformation. If you're going to see reformation in the church of Jesus Christ or in your own spiritual life, it's because the word ab is being formed on your lips. The lips of your soul, the lips of your mouth. You are beginning to behold the Father. If you have not beheld the Father, the reformation has not yet begun. It's the first word in the awakened and empowered church. Now, I know that sounds like an oversimplification. And we could say, well, Jesus is the first word. Uh, yeah. But the first work of Jesus in our life is to bring us to the Father. If, if you've hung around me for any length of time, you know this. Jesus' great journey and, and destination is the right hand of the Father. And he wants to take us there. He's known as the way. The way to what? The way to the Father. Jesus' goal and destination is the Father. You know when it's all said and done, it says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Speaking of Jesus, to the glory of who? The Father. This is all about the Father. It all comes down to the Father. And that's why we lift high Jesus Christ. Because it brings glory to the Father. Jesus was about the Father's business. He carried on the work of the Father. He revealed the nature of the Father, the face of the Father, the heart of the Father, the hands, the feet of the Father. If the Father could take on human form and do, what would he do? He would do what Jesus did. Jesus was the perfect expression of the Father. The first labial sound of every true prayer. Father, Ab, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. This is the inception point of prayer. Who are you praying to? Ab. This is all directed towards him. This is all about him. And the only way to get to him is through Jesus. Which is why Jesus is the crowning jewel of the church. Because it brings glory to the Father. To our Ab. That is the perfect enunciation of our Abba. A generation remembers its father's. This isn't going to be the most pleasant uh, meditation. 
I'm going to go through a list, I think it's about 10 things, of what our generation has said about its fathers. You're, some of you are going to get uncomfortable with this little list because, to be honest, that's what you experience. Some of you, you didn't have to go through this, okay? Praise God if you didn't. But for a good majority of us, this is what we've experienced growing up, not just in the church, but just in life. They were always frustrated with us, irritated and harsh. Fathers have a standard, but they seem to struggle with anger. There's just, you can't do anything right. It's just always on edge. And so you feel on edge as a little child because they're always irritated with you. You see, they might have had a bad day or their bank account might be low, but you don't know that. You just know that they're frustrated with you. They never had time to truly nurture, to just hold, to just listen. It's a rare thing for many of us to ponder our growing up and to picture those moments on our father's lap where he just held us. And he just listened to us as we babbled about who knows what. And he nodded along. Now, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with Dubber Abbey lately. It's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's fascinating. You don't know what they're saying. However, it's not that you comprehend everything, even though Dubber won't let you go until you know what he said. So are you talking about the, the frog on the floor? No, no. No, he's got from frog. See, Harper knows. Uh, They were always tired and needing their rest. You've been around fathers. They come home from work. That's right when you as a little child run up to their legs and want to play with them. You want to wrestle. And what do they need? They always need to rest. They always need to go sit down and pick up their paper and get away from it all. Close the door to their study. They're always tired. They're always needing to rest. What's the deal with these dads? They were too busy for us, otherwise occupied with the cares of life. Always something that has to be tended to other than you. You Like I said, this isn't a fun list. I'm just going through the classic list that we as a generation were dealt. In a general sense, not in a specific sense. I'm not trying to point at any specific father. I'm just saying this is what many of us experienced. They didn't follow through on their promises. That one hurt probably nothing more exciting to a young child than to have their father tell them, you're going to go camping this weekend, or I'll see you at the game, or I'll be there for the play, and not have them there. I don't know why it hurts us, why it matters to us as kids, because there's a whole bunch of people that probably didn't come to the play. You don't even care, but you do care when your father doesn't come. He said he was. And so suddenly the word of a father begins to be diminished in your heart and your mind. And so now when you come to the word of God, and it's again another word from a father, you don't know if you can trust it. You see, the weight of a father is very important on the spiritual development of a child. And if that father mishandles his position spiritually in that child's life, that child is not correct in his approach to the kingdom of heaven. Six. They cared more about football, hunting, and their careers than they did about their children. Whether or not that's true, this is what a generation would testify. In other words, the father would argue that and say, that's not true. I don't care more about football than I do you. I don't care more about hunting. Well, then could you give it up? 
I don't think that's necessary that I need to give it up. I can love you and love those things. I mean, like those things at the same time. You see, they're caught red-handed. They do care more about these things. It's proven practically in every day of their life. That ought not to be. They didn't know how to encourage. They only knew how to criticize. It's a fascinating meditation. I don't really want you to go into it. But to ponder how many words of encouragement you heard from your father growing up as opposed to how many words of criticism you heard. Don't, don't ponder it. Okay, I shouldn't have even... That's like the old classic, don't think of the elephant on the Eiffel Tower type of statement. However, this is something many of us can feel. We can understand and it hurts us. Okay, now this message isn't about you being hurt. I'm not going to give you self-pity in and through this. We're going to rise up because we do have a father. And he's not a father that has done this to us. Okay, but we sometimes need to at least get it out on the table. Okay, this is what we're struggling with. This is what we witnessed growing up. They only cared about us if we were somehow benefiting their lives. They only gave us gifts on our birthdays and on Christmas. Some of you are saying, I didn't even get them on my birthday and Christmas. They were always anxious and stressed about money. Classic father. Do fathers think about anything else other than money? Think about it from the young kid perspective. It's all my dad ever talked about was how low our bank account was, how much the kids were costing us, how much do kids need to eat these days? Wait, I just bought you new clothes. What are you saying? You grew out of them already? How am I supposed to make it in this life? I go off to work and come back and you eat up all the money I work for. Is that what a father's supposed to be saying? The hope in our rottenness. Okay, so what that was, that was a meditation on rottenness. Nothing very pleasant about it. Sorry to do it to you. So the idea that we have here is let me give the scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now many of us have been, this is going to be an overly simplistic message for some of you. It's like John 3.16. Eric, is that the best scripture you could come up with? We all know that scripture. I'm, I'm expecting some profound thing from you. And I go to John 3.16. I think it's about time we meditate upon John 3.16 a little. But look at this. We, we know this scripture. What does this scripture mean to us? It means hope in and amidst our rottenness. We don't have it that good. That's what most of us would say. There's a reason for self-pity here. Look at the hand I was dealt. And so what do we have? We have John 3.16. It's our hope in our rottenness. And so here's the idea. What we have here is not what we have there. Oh, when I get to heaven, it will be good. But down here, the only thing I have is hope that it will be better someday. That's what most of us have stopped with our gospel. And that's what John 3.16 means to us. It's like, well, at least I have hope. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son and giving me eternal life. Eternal life to most of us means when we die, we have life that keeps going. And it's a, it's a better life, we hope. Well, I'm not going to say that that's wrong. Because it is a truth. That there is something even better. And when we are going through trials in this life, it is great to know. That we have God ahead. That it only gets better in the future. That's true. You know that there's even a better truth than that? Than just having hope in the midst of our rottenness? See, most of us have accepted our rottenness. It's just the state of being that we're in. Rotten. 
So how are you doing today? Rotten. But I have hope in my rottenness. Have you ever read John 3.16? I want you to realize, if you are demonstrating the face of the Father to this world, it is not a rotten face with a little glimmer of hope someday. That's not how it works. So I want to build in this message, and I want to walk through. I'm going to go back to John 3.16 four different times. Could you imagine how original this message sounds? Oh, there's our scripture. Eric Ludy remembers his father. Oh, this should be interesting. Okay, I went through that list of terrible attributes of fatherhood. Now, some of you could relate, maybe not to everything on the list, but to some of those pieces. My goal isn't to indict fathers. If you're a father in here and you're getting a little restless in your seat, going, great. Or you felt the elbow of your wife into, the, into your rib cage, like, oh, honey, it's about time you heard a message like this. That isn't the goal of this message. And so, wives, do not sharpen your elbows as we go through this. Eric Ludy remembers his father. I would like to give a testimony of my father. I have been dealt something very, very good in my life. It doesn't mean it was perfect. But it's very, very good, both in what I married into and what I came from. And as a result, I have been entrusted with something, and I'm responsible with something. To whom much is given, much is expected. I've been given much in this arena, which is one of the reasons I'm so passionate about it. So I have a whole list of little things that are to remind me of as I'm talking about my dad. There's this picture of uh, an Olympic runner named Derek Redmond. You guys ever heard of him? I don't remember if it was 1992 Olympics, some, somewhere back in then. It was Barcelona, Spain, whatever that one was. And he was the 400-meter runner, and he you know, trained his entire life for this event. And he was rounding the track right around the 300-meter point, and he pulled a hamstring. So this is a guy who trained six hours a day, overcome incredible injuries, incredible odds, made it to the Olympic Games. Then he finally is in the race and then pulls up with a hamstring about 300 meter point. And what always stood out to me about uh, this particular story is that here's this guy. He's devastated on the track. Cannot believe that he's fallen short. And this big guy starts, you know, bursting down through the crowd, pushes aside the security guard, jumps out onto the track and runs to the side of this runner. And it's the dad, Derek Redmond's dad. And Derek Redmond and his dad went across that finish line together, limping. Derek Redmond crying, planting his face into his dad's chest. I remember when I saw that, first of all, it deeply moved me. But then secondly, I remember thinking, that's my dad. I know very few dads that would burst out onto the track and that would risk, who knows what type of violation this would be, but running out onto the track to identify with their son in his time of weakness. Incredible picture. It's my dad. So just to give you, you know, I'm not trying to rub it in or salt in the wound for you. I may make this list, open up a wound for you, and then throw in salt. It's like, but I had a good dad. That's not my goal. However, I want you to know, I've seen something in this area. So when I start talking about a new generation of fathers, I want you to realize I've seen something. And I know the impact of it. The workaholic. I'm not trying to undermine my dad here. Okay? I have to be very watchful in how I do this. But my dad is a self-professed, when he was growing up, well, when I was young, workaholic. He found his identity in his work. And he loved his work. He worked for AT&T. I mean, how exciting can that be? And my dad lived for that job. I mean, he always had his suit on, his wingtip shoes, you know, dressed 
to perfection, would go off with his briefcase in hand, and sometimes I wouldn't see him for a long time. He was always working. My dad was always working. It seemed like he was always traveling. And there was something in me as a young boy that didn't want that. It's funny because when you're young, you don't know how to articulate things. But there was something inside of me that wanted him to be there. But you, you don't know how to articulate that, so you just sort of complain about things. You act up a little. You get in trouble for acting up. But I wanted, if I could have said it from my little 8 to 13-year-old heart, I would have said, Dad, thank you for providing for us. I'm so glad you care about us so much that you will go out and work for us. But I have one request. Could you just give it all up? I'd rather live in a tent with you than live in this house with all this stuff without you. What is it about a kid? We want our dad. We want him to be near. It gives us security. It gives us a sense of place. It gives us a sense of strength. But when he's not there, what does it do? Uh, It removes all those things. We don't have security. We don't have a sense of place. We don't have a sense of who we are and what we're called to. We need a dad. We need an ob. Okay, you see what I'm setting you up for? You have one. Whether or not your earthly one has perfectly represented the kingdom of heaven, you have yourself an ob. The pinstripes on the sideline. My dad might have worked a lot. And he might have traveled a lot, but I tell you what, my dad would cancel trips to be on the sideline for my sporting events. I know that seems like a strange contradiction, but my dad loved sports. It was his love language. Me being involved in sports was like the language of love for my dad's heart. And I mean, the guy was so funny. He would stand on the sidelines. He'd come to practices in his suit. He had this gold tercel, and he would like pull up. I'd always be looking for the gold tercel, even during practices. And there it was. And then I'd look on the sideline. There's my dad. You know, that one of those dark blue navy suits that are a black suit. He always had it at his wingtip shoes. You know, and he'd stand on the sideline. During practices, you know, he'd be yelling at the coach to put Eric in. I mean, he was so utterly, unashamedly biased towards his son. If I ever got pulled out to the sideline for any reason, he'd be like acting like he's in the crowd going, Stick Ludy in! If you want to win! You know, things like that. That's my dad. Pinstripes on the sideline. He was not there, and yet he was there. And there was this language we had between us. And that was, it was a sports language. We didn't have any intimate conversation. We just talked sports. I remember when I was really young, so I'm, you know, say 8 to 11, somewhere in there. My dad would tuck me in at night, and he would say, I love you. And then he would kiss me. It's a little awkward as you grow up. You know, it's just like, words like that are sort of mushy. And kisses, yuck. You know, when you're a guy and that's a dad, you know, it's just a little awkward. And so I found myself sort of pushing my dad away. You know, those young teen years. And my dad didn't know how to respond to it, but he wasn't going to overdo it and try and force a kiss on his son, and he grew up in a man age too. He knows that this isn't appropriate stuff. And so, you know, when he's a, I'm a little kid, that's fine. But as I get a little older, you know, you need to hold back on things like this. Shows of affection, expressions of affection. So from the age of somewhere around 11, my dad didn't kiss me, and he never said I love you to me. Yet I heard it every day before that. 
So did I know my dad loved me? Of course I did. I mean, could you imagine if someone said, so I heard that your dad hasn't said the words I love you to you since the age of 11. Maybe he doesn't love you. I'd hit them in the teeth. My dad loves me. I know he loves me. just wish he'd say it. It's a funny thing. But my dad was there even though he wasn't always there. Sort of hard to explain. Playing for my dad. When I was out on that field, I could care less about the coach's opinion. All I cared about was my dad's opinion of how I played. I mean, I played for my dad. And if my dad wasn't there on the sidelines, just sort of walk around, you know, with sort of a somber expression on my face, and then I'd see his gold tercel pull up. You don't want to mess with Eric Ludy with his dad on the sideline. I scored my goals when my dad was on the sideline. That's when I became a rampage because my dad was watching. There's something about the gaze of a father. And when you have it, you understand it. When you've never had it, you might not understand what I mean, that I played for my dad. I wanted to see him smile. I wanted him to be proud of me. My dad was trained in an age where you do not compliment too much because you want them to develop a work ethic and you do not want them to be overly satisfied with their accomplishments too early. And so if your son does something good, well, you don't say you did it. You say you're getting there. It's just, it's a tactic for maturing and developing a work ethic in your child. So that's how my dad approached me. I'd get done scoring a hat trick in a soccer game. It was my best game I'd ever had. And I remember coming over to my dad who'd watched the whole thing. And I know he was bursting with pride. But he didn't show that to me. He never showed me his pride to me. I would hear about it where, you know, someone would say, yeah, your dad only talks about you. I'm like, really? Tell me more. I want to hear what my dad said. Could you tell me what my dad said? Because you know what he told me? <clears throat> You're getting there. You're getting there. I'm getting there? And so as a result, I had a complex. I don't know what else to call it. But I was never there. I was always short of there. Where's there? I'm not exactly sure, but I wasn't there. I was always down here just before you get there. And so as a result, in every area of my life, I wasn't there. It just sort of transcended. And so in my weight, in my weight, I was uh, too skinny. I know, don't make any comments about that now. By the way, back then I weighed 25 pounds more than I do now. Because you imagine what I'd feel like now if I was still struggling with this. In my weightlifting, I was always too weak. In my running, I was always too slow. In my soccer, I was just not there. I always felt inferior. I felt insufficient. It's a weird thing how these types of things can affect you. And I remember being in missionary school and God put his finger on this because I'd been subtly lying to everyone around me. When it came to my bench press, I added 10 pounds. When it came to my weight, I added 10 pounds. When it came to my 40-yard dash time, I took off like 0.2 tenths of a second. When it came to my 400 meter, I took off like a, a second and a half. That's harmless, but you see, I'm not there. So if I compensate, I'll be there. This is how a lot of us live our life. Not the exact things, but we've been infected. We have taken on a mentality because we have listened to words that didn't edify and bring us to the wholeness of what Jesus Christ has done in us. And we're still not there. 
The words, I love you, boy, those words haunted me. I remember when I was 21 or 22, all I wanted was to hear the words, I love you, from my dad. It was starting to get to the point of ridiculous. I didn't talk to anyone about it, but I was thinking about it all the time. I don't know how to get it out of my dad. I just want to hear him say it. If he could just say it to me, it would solve my soul's riddle. I remember it was in the back of church service one day, and I was home from missionary school. And I was standing in the back with my dad. And I said, um, by the way, it was one of the most awkward moments in my life, too, not just one of the most awkward moments for him. Uh, could, you, uh, could you say that you love me? Imagine how my poor dad was. Since the age of 11, he's been struggling with this. I know my dad loved me. That wasn't the issue. It's just, you want to hear it. There's something about hearing the words that changes you. My dad couldn't speak, which made it all the more awkward. And I don't know what it was, like another year or so that passed. And I'll never forget the moment on the phone. I was out in Idaho and my dad called me up. And he said to me, uh, <clears throat> Eric, uh, I just want you to know, uh, <clears throat> I, 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 I love you. What what would it matter? It's just a few little words. A few little words that little Eric Ludy needed. I wasn't that little. I was 23 at the time. But I was little. I was a little kid inside. Something in us that needs to be matured into men and women. And it's something about our ob that does it to us. Darth Vader sounds. My dad, when he would watch... uh, Sad movies. Anything sad. My dad was super sensitive, just like I am. Okay, I can't cry for anything in any normal situation in life. But you stick me in front of Anna Green Gables and have, you know, Gilbert Blythe, you know, come in to kiss Anne at the end. And I'm like, crying. It's ridiculous. It's embarrassing. He goes like, oh, come on, Eric. Pull yourself together. Okay, there's people dying all over the world. And I cry over this. Okay, it's, it's pathetic, really. But my dad was super sensitive in his heart, too. And so we would get to the point where anything, if it's remotely sad, like some Hallmark commercial would come on, and my dad would sound like Darth Vader. And we used to all just stop and look over at him and be like, there there goes daddy. Uh, Look at him. And he's like, fine. My dad never cried in front of me. All growing up, I never saw my dad cry. And so here I am at this crucial juncture of my life at the age of 23. God has laid a calling upon my life. I know where I'm headed. I'm headed there for Jesus Christ, for the glory of the Father. But there is something still missing in my life. And one of the reasons I have such strength in my life is because of what happened next. My dad went into a side room and typed up, must have spent a couple days doing it on this little IBM computer, you know, with those dot matrix printers. Uh, and, I mean, he took forever to put this thing together. It was only two pages long. And he pulls it out, you know, <laughs> rips it off the printer, and then asked me to come into his bedroom. Sort of a strange destination. And he had four chairs set up. He had one for my mom, one for me, one for himself, and one for a box of Kleenex. And he sat down and he said, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it through this. Uh, that's why I have the Kleenex. I'm thinking, Darth Vader needs Kleenex? Uh, 
My dad starts and he read it to me. Eric, my son, I love you. He just said it. I was in his presence and he said it to me. That takes guts. And he kept reading. First of all, he started crying. I had to reach for one of his Kleenexes, which I'd never seen my dad cry. He said, I haven't always been there for you. I want you to know. Well, he asked forgiveness for that. He said, I want you to know I want to be there for you now. He actually said things to me in this little, I'm 23 years old. And he said things about leadership that I was called to in my life. He said, Eric, your lips are our lives. That's what he said to me when I was 23 years old, that I would be a communicator of the truth of Jesus Christ. I didn't talk to anyone. My dad knew me. There's something about a dad. There's something about a dad that is wired to understand their children. And that day changed my life. We were up in the mountains with Leslie's family and my family. And I was in this love story with Leslie. And I remember my dad, this one key moment, I was sitting in a chair and he came up behind me and set his hands on my shoulders and spoke words over my life that I don't know that I can remember the words. If you ask me to quote them, I don't know. But they were words of strength. There's something about a father's words that when spoken, adds steel to the soul. You ever notice the opposite is true too? Because that's what most of us have experienced. When the, critici- criti- the words of criticism from a father come out, you're stupid, you're ugly, you got nothing, you're a weight on my life. You know that those words crush you faster than any other words? See, the words of a father have the potential to mold and shape in the most beautiful and powerful way and destroy in the most obscene way. Leslie and I had our ministry just suddenly take off. This is when we were about one year married, to maybe a year and a half married. We had no idea what to do with it. We didn't plan on doing any of this. This wasn't what we were expecting to do. I was expecting to go to med school. I wasn't expecting to write a book on relationships. It's like, well, you've got to be kidding. My dad came to me. This is about 17 years ago, 16 years ago. And he says, Eric, I'm leaving my job to come serve you. My dad walked away from everything in his life to come and wash my feet for a living. And I tell you what, he had bad pay working for me. <laughs> we didn't have anything. My dad left it all to come wash my feet. You want to know something that's humbling? Is when your dad washes your feet. All I can say for any dad in here or any future dad in here, there is something powerful about what my dad did. And one of the reasons I have a strength in my masculinity is because I witnessed the weakness in my dad's. I literally watched him take the lowest place with his son. My dad would do the behind the scenes work. He's an executive. My dad leaves it, leaves his pinstripes, leaves his wingtip shoes. I remember he had this little bag that he would wear around his waist. Uh, what do you call those things? Uh, what are it, fanny packs? It's one of the most awkward names just to start with. My dad leaves all his, you know, his nice garb and has this little pack. Okay, I'm not even going to use the word fanny. Uh, 
sitting on his hip. And we used to always joke with him about it because it's like he went from, you know, business executive to, you know, slave and bond servants here. That's my dad. That's my dad. He didn't just do this. Okay, when we had some all, all sorts of interesting occurrences in ministry. If you want uh, excitement in your life, go into ministry. If you want to be attacked, go into ministry. If you want to see hell, go into ministry. We had a terrible situation happen. Oh, I don't know. This is probably 14 years ago. Where we lost everything in our ministry. We were conned and duped into a certain situation by someone who was working with us. They set up a false schedule. We poured out all our money into it. And now we were without anything. All we had was debt because we'd put it all out because we were going to get it back in the tour. And we had to lay off everyone in our organization, including ourselves. We had to sell everything and move into Leslie's parents' basement. Right about this time, by the way, I had someone uh, sit down with me because that was right when our first book hit the bestseller list. And they said, Eric, I'm really concerned about you struggling with pride. I'm living in my in-law's basement. That's not what I'm struggling with right now. Thank you. My dad, get this, my dad was laid off. I had to lay off my dad. I had nothing. He knew it. He didn't, it wasn't like I laid him off. He says, yeah, you can't pay me. Okay, but just to make it sound even juicier. I had to lay off my dad. We had nothing. Our first event that was in front of us was, I don't know, about six months out. And it was just like our hope that we would at least get some cash flow in. And in this event, there was another uh, con game that was played. And all of our uh, event sales ended up going somewhere else. And it was my dad. They had come to my dad and said, Eric told us that the money is supposed to go over here instead of to you guys. And my dad says, well, whatever Eric said goes. So I'm sitting down with my dad after this event. And I remember his, his head was right here and there was a Wendy's sign above his head. I mean, this is how vividly I remember this moment. And my dad is realizing that it wasn't true, that the money wasn't supposed to go that way. And that was all the money we had. We hadn't had any money for six months and that was all of our money. It got redirected somewhere else. And my dad's looking at me and he's seen the look on my face. I didn't know how to handle uh, anxiety as well as I do now back then. And I'm just like. And my dad says, if you go down, then I'm going down with you. That's my dad. I want you to realize, I'm not going to try and pass along my dad as if he was perfect. My dad would hate it if I did try and do that. My dad isn't wanting to be represented as the perfect dad. However, in a sense, he was. Because he perfectly responded to his inadequacies. None of us are perfect. However, we can perfectly respond in the now. My dad basically made a decision in his 50s to say... The last years of my life are going to be the best years of my life. And he's proved it. My dad is a servant for a living. Okay, remember the first one? It says the hope in our rottenness. This is the hope for our rottenness. Okay, remember the scripture? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I want you to think about this in a more expanded way. Do you realize what has been given to us? 
Jesus. Do you realize what that gift is to us? It's not just hope of something better someday. It's hope of something better right now. So the idea is what he has accomplished is for here, not just there. Why in the world do you want to hang out in rottenness when you can have hope now? You can have a changed life now. You can be set free from your rottenness now. Who in the world would want to stay in rottenness? Who would want to stay in a prison cell if the door's open? Welcome to John 3.16. The door to the prison cell is unlocked. That is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not just hope in the midst of difficulty. It's transformation of our difficulty. If you've been dealt a difficult hand in regards to fatherhood in your life, did you know that God, if you entrust it to him, can take all of that difficulty, all of that junk, and transform it into a beautiful picture of his grace here on earth? You have all the more reason to smile today. Because as dark as it's gotten, God can make it all the lighter. The more challenge you've been dealt, the more beauty can come out of it. Do not moan and groan. I want you to look at the face of your father today, your ob, and let him take everything that the enemy is meant to destroy you and turn it into a beautiful good. A new generation of fathers. This is my proposal. I have a vision, not just of great men in this generation, but of what those great men become in their marriages and in their families. But not just in their marriages and their families, but with all of those that are considered fatherless. You know that in a group like this, we have a lot of fatherless? It doesn't, follow me on this, it doesn't mean you don't have an earthly father. It just means there's a vacancy within you for someone who has come alongside of your soul and shepherded you, who has nurtured you, has held there in a sense, held you on their lap and just listened to you, who has been willing to go into the rec room and wrestle with you, who has been willing to stand by your soul and stand on the sidelines and cheer you on and say, put Ludi in. Some of us have not had that. But those of us that have and those of us that do have it, guess what? We have a high responsibility. Those of us that have seen the face of Ab, guess what? We have the responsibility to show that face to the fatherless around us. May it be said of us, this new generation of fathers, We were there. When this next generation rises up to testify of us as fathers, when my children are grown and someone says, what was it like having Eric for a father? What do I desire them to say? We were there. When they needed us, we were there. We were there. We were just present. We weren't always gone somewhere. It's a great risk in what I do too. There's so much demand around this earth for the gospel. But I want my children to always be able to say, but he was there. I don't know how he did it. He was always tending to the needs of others around us, but he was always there for us. May it be said of us that we met danger with our own chest exposed. May it be said of us that we were patient and long-suffering. May it be said that we were listeners and good question askers. 
May it be said of us that we were teachers imparting everything we knew. May it be said that we were champions for Jesus, living replicas of his grace. May it be said of us that we were gentle, huggable, kissable, and cuddleable. It's not typically what we as fathers are thinking. Could you imagine if the testimony of any of our children would be, oh, he was so gentle. And then, of course, if you think about those of us that are breaking jaws of evildoers and removing the prey from their teeth for a living, it's not the typical word to use that you would use to describe those of us that are after the lost. But that is the exact word. And may it be said of us that we were gentle, that we were huggable. And there's just dads that aren't huggable. Let's just say it straight. My mom used to call me peanut brittle. She'd come up and try and hug me, and I'd be you need to soften up, Eric. Well, now I'm all limber. I want to be huggable. Kissable, a little awkward, I know. But you know what? I want my children to feel like they can get so close. Touch my face. Kiss my face. I'm kissable. Isn't that a funny thing to be described as? I want to be kissable. Cuddleable. I love cuddles with my kids. May it be said of us that we wrestled on the floor with our kids and wrestled in the public square for the truth. May it be said of us that we preached the gospel, spoke the gospel, taught the gospel, and lived the gospel in every moment. May it be said of us that we were protectors from everything hostile to spiritual, emotional, mental, and physical health. So many fathers leave the door wide open to their homes. Anything and everything can truck itself in there. Set itself up in the living room. Come out of the television set. Not on our watch. We must be protectors of everything that would erode a soul. It's our job. And if we don't do it, no one's doing it for our kids. May it be said of us that we were rescuers of the weak, advocates for the vulnerable, fathers of the fatherless. May it be said of us that we were honorable, honest, faithful, and true. May it be said of us that we were noble gentlemen unto our wives and loved her as a woman should be loved. May it be said of us that we were always accessible, always approachable, and always wanting our children near. May it be said of us that we were thoughtful, warm-hearted, generous, and kind. May it be said of us that we were strong when strength was required. May it be said of us that we were soft when softness was needed. May it be said of us that we were always the last to sleep and the first to rise. When I'm teaching on honor, that's one of the statements, of one of the principles of honor. William Wallace, when he was, after a day of battle, his men were injured and he would make sure that they were all in the triage tent so they were cared for. They were all laid down at night. And guess who was the last to sleep? The general. And then when it came to the morning, guess who was the first to wake up? William Wallace. You know, it gives you a little insecurity when you get up and your general is still snoozing. It's a hard thing in some homes when those kids get up at four. But in other words, the desire is to give a sense of strength within your home. Be the general. And may they always say of us that we were always on our knees praying. And that we were true men. Men as God intended them to be. We were fathers. It sounds like some kind of movie uh, name there. We were fathers. We refused to deny the holocausts 
of our day. You know how easy it is for a father to go brain dead when it comes to the challenges that await him in his home. And his wife says, honey, I'm just really concerned about Joey. Joey just isn't responding. He's rolling his eyes. He's hardened. And what does the father say? Look, I have way too much on my mind already. I don't have time to deal with that. You're going to have to deal with that. Do not deny the holocausts of our day. There are people dying out there, some of them in your own home. You must have your eyes wide open. I was watching a video, uh, it was a couple days ago, and it was talking about the Holocaust. In Austria, you'll be thrown into jail if you deny the Holocaust. Isn't that an extraordinary statement? But that's exactly the way it is for us as fathers. Throw us in jail if we're going to deny the Holocaust in our own home. And the Holocaust outside of our home. We're men. We're supposed to be the strong ones in this generation. Wake up. We refuse to step down on the issue of protecting life in the womb. We refuse to say no when the orphan child needed a home. When there's a child and the duck comes at our door, we're fathers. May it be said of us that we were good fathers. Fathers as the heavenly father is. We knock on his door. Does he have room for us? You better believe it. He has room for us. It's a challenging one for us. But there's a holocaust out there and may we not deny it. We refuse, may it be said of us that we refuse to allow the Down syndrome child to be cast aside and buried inside a government program. May it be said of us that we refuse to ignore the young pregnant girl's situation. May it be said of us that we refuse to act as if the sex trafficking industry is a myth. May it be said of us that we refuse to overlook the needs of the single mom's plight. And may it be said of us that we refuse to do nothing when something needed to be done. As a church, what are we to bear? The face of Ab. The face of the Father. This isn't just for men. This is the statement from the church of Jesus Christ. We must not deny the Holocaust in our day. We must say yes and open up our lives. Yes, it's going to be uncomfortable. Yes, it's a lot easier to just sit in the Barca lounger and read the newspaper. Yes, it's easier to flip channels and zone out. But that isn't what we're here for. We are here to be fathers, exemplary pictures of the Father, the way Jesus Christ was. And Christianity could be said, Jesus Christ was a picture of the Father, and we are a picture of Jesus Christ. It's Christianity. It's the Father sent him, so he sends us. Not to sit in a barca lounger and go to sleep when our world is dying. We were fathers. And may it be said of us that we refuse to turn a blind eye to the encroachment of the world upon our children's souls. May it be said of us that we refuse to yield to the plea to let our children just be normal. You know how much of a temptation this is? I just want them to be normal. Look, that's just normal. Every kid goes through that. Every kid has to go through the public school system. Why does it matter? Yeah, I dealt with that too when I was that age. I turned out fine. Oh, did you? Do not turn a blind eye. And do not allow your children to become normal. We don't need normal kids. We need super normal kids. Kids that see Jesus Christ as the primary agenda of their existence. Not to fit in and to look for popularity. We must be saved from normal. 
May it be said of us that we refuse to allow Jesus to have spit upon his cheek. And may it be said of us that we refuse to allow truth to fall on the streets and judgment to turn away backward. And may it be said of us that we refuse to allow our boys to grow up without being trained as men. And may it be said of us that we refused our girl, refuse to allow our girls to grow up without being trained as women. May it be said of us that we refuse to accept mediocrity while excellence could be had. We were fathers, as God intended fathers to be. This is my third reference to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So obviously you see that I emboldened this. For God so loved. And you know that that's actually a symbol of the father. It could say for the father so loved that he gave his only begotten son. We're talking about the father here. For the Father so loved, when you catch a glimpse of the Father's face, what do you see? You see love. It's a love that moves him to action. It's a love that is so concentrated and high-powered that it turns the world upside down. What do they see when they look at the church? What is this world supposed to see? They will know my disciples by their love. They have the same love as is demonstrated here. And I guarantee you, this is not an easy love. This is a love that costs. This is a love that gives every bit of what it has. So the idea is, this is the commission to love. We have the Son, so we have the same love in us. I want you to realize how profound the gospel is. It's not just hope. That one day we can get out of this pit. But it is hope to see this pit transformed while we're here. That's extraordinary. That's something to cheer about, shout about, dance about. We are not under the thumb of sin. We kick sin in the teeth. Why? Because sin's defeated. The devil's been wrought empty of any power. This is good stuff. But it's not just that. Is that we are filled with the life of Jesus Christ. The very heart of God. The very expression of the Father's face. Lives in us. He loved so much. And we are to love so much. This is the commission. Go love. And it's not some sappy, spineless, lip-wristed version of it. It's love that lays down its life for the least. It's not a love that tries to cloak and, and, and somehow excuse licentiousness and sin and flesh. It's a love that bulldozes it, pushes it out. Because we must be vessels fit to carry the holy life of God. Otherwise known as the Holy Spirit. It's not just the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit that resembles the set-apart nature, the consecrated nature of God. And he arose and came to his father. Who are we talking about? We're talking about that prodigal. That one young man who thought he had his life together. Tried to live it in his own strength, his own way. And guess what he found? Life outside the father doesn't work. Many of us have participated in this sort of life, even under the banner of Christianity. It's our self-made version of it. We want God, but we want the benefits of God. God, could you give me the inheritance? Could you give me your benefits? I'm going to go live my way. And guess what? We realize that soon we're living 
eating pig slop. And he arose, speaking of the prodigal, and came to his father. There's our great answer. How is the father going to receive you? I want you to realize this is such a profound picture, not just of our father in heaven, but of Jesus Christ. And get this, and of us as the church. This is us. This is meant to be our hearts and our expression, not just to our children, but to the lost and the dying in this world. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Manly tears, the recipe for bringing back the real stuff of Christianity. Uh, A man called up, this is in the days before phones, but uh, notified William Booth uh, that they had been praying and praying and praying in this one hardened location for revival to break out. And the church was just dead. There was no life. So he said, what can we do? We've tried everything. We've tried praying. We've prayed through the night. We cannot seem to break through this. William Booth's answer, try tears. This has had a big impact on me because I realize, I don't know if any of you are like this, but I don't just have tears to try. It's like, I'm just going to say one day, oh, that makes sense. Okay, and then start blubbering. I cannot make myself cry. I'd be a terrible actor. I always look at actors that can just cry, and I'm like, how do they do that? I have no fake in me. I just have no ability to fake it. I could really be a powerful speaker if I could just whip up tears. I can't. Thank God, I can't. You know what I've been praying for for years? Tears. I need tears, God. See, what tears are, is there a transference of his burden? What's on his face to ours? He's feeling something that I'm not feeling. I'm dead to it. Something's wrong with me, God. I don't care, but I want to. I want to care about those that are dying around me. I want to care about my kids. I want to care about my wife. I want to care about this world around me, but I don't. I need what you have. God, place it within me. I need tears. So I call this manly tears. You want to see the church turn on its head? You want to see families turn on their head? Have men start weeping over the lostness of those around them. Suddenly, what happens to the church? Well, just imagine, women, if you saw the men in here on their faces weeping over the lostness and the dying. How about those that are being aborted tomorrow? How about those that are on the side of the road without any advocate on the other side of the world? Little orphan children. How about the widows that have nothing to eat today and no one to care about them? Does anyone care? He does. Our God cares. Look at his face. You can see it. It's written all over his face. We're just not expressing it. We're not sharing it. We're focused on everything in this world but him. We look at the Father, and guess what? The face of the Father becomes our face. We have a tradition in the Ludi house, and I'm going to invite you into it. I'm not going to give you too much about it, but... This isn't a tradition with all of our kids. This is a tradition before Leslie and I go to bed at night. And it's funny because to call it a tradition, sometimes traditions form, you don't even realize they form. 
But there's something we do almost every night. Not every night. There's certain nights we forget. But it's just one of those things we do. I ask Leslie, I say, well, here's what I say. It's not actually a question, but it is. I say, remember Abby Rosie? See, Abby Rosie is my little two-year-old. And I say, remember Abby Rosie? Leslie knows exactly what I mean by that. See, that's a trigger word for her to tell me something cute that Abby Rosie did that day. And then we laugh. We just sort of stick it in our mouth like a little uh, chewy and suck on it. It's delectable. It's everything we care about in life are the little nuances of our children. Okay, so I had Leslie write up an answer. I, I, I said four things. Remember Abby Rosie? Remember Debbie Dewey? Remember Harper Grace? Remember B? Those are our four kids. This is what she gave me. And this is the type of thing she says every night. I want you to realize it doesn't make any difference if you know what these mean or if they're funny or cute to you. To us, this is delectable. This is everything I care about in life. This is what makes me happy. This is what makes me cry. This is my life. Remember Abby Rosie. Well, let's see. Remember Abby. She yells out, I can't see whenever she can't get something to work. And Leslie says, I was rocking her the other night and she randomly told me, I'm really four. You see, it's funny because for those of you that don't have kids, it's sort of like, yeah, that's not that funny. That's, you know, a stand-up comedian, Eric, you, that wouldn't pull it off. This isn't for you. You see, what this message is, is to talk about how a father responds to the intricacies and the little delights that he, that he gains out of his little children. That's gold to me. When I look at this list, I'm like, we need to save all these things. We need to, every time we share these things at night, we need to get these written down. Every one of them. And I could spend the rest of my life just looking at them and cherishing them. This is speaking about Abby. She tries to jump into the big pool without any help and yells out, go myself, whenever I get too close. She randomly says, hallelujah, when she's in her car seat riding around town. Remember Debbie Dewey. His, his official name is Kipling, but that's way too serious. So remember Debbie Dewey, and then she'll tell me all. Because Leslie remembers little things. I, I'm like too global, I guess. And so I need Leslie to bring these things up. When he wants to see a grasshopper, he says, go see a hopper grass. Whenever he starts playing with his little plastic animals, he gets a funny low voice and says, Hi, guys. <laughs> it seems to be the only phrase his animals ever speak. It's true. He drives around a little plastic fire truck and delivers cheese pizza to mommy and daddy. When he wants to go to the little lake by our house, he asks if we can go to the ocean. And when we get there, he asks if we are going to see a dolphin in the water. Oh, Debbie Dewey. Remember Harper Grace? She was getting over a cold and asked me, why do I have the sneezles? When her tummy was growling, she asked me, why is there a bumblebee in my tummy? The other day she asked, uh, 
her, her arm, or I think it was her leg that had fallen asleep, and she says, my leg has the wigglies, mommy. Remember B, also known as Hudson Jack. That's you. He recently said, when I'm 19, I'm going to go to the mission field and adopt a few kids even before I'm married. Mommy, that means you'll be a grandma. <laughs> Do you want my kids to call you grandma or granny? <laughs> His legs were sore and he told me, both my legs are ouching. Collecting various random items around the house and placing them into a bucket. Oh, he's been doing this. He's been collecting various random items around the house and placing them into a bucket, which he calls the don't needer, meaning we don't need these items anymore. So he'll take an old shirt and say, I'm going to put this in, into the don't needer. I want you to know, to a father, it doesn't matter if it means anything to anyone else. To a father, that's gold. And I want you to realize... That's the way our Ab in heaven is with us. He has a delight in the small things. So there's a Ludi tradition where we sit around and we remember our kids. And we delight in our kids. But I want to expand that tradition. This is the Ludi tradition expanded. And this is my proposal to all of us. It's not just that we have the basic tradition. It's that we realize what we've been given. That we've been given so much that it must extend beyond us. See, I have four little children. But imagine if I was sitting in bed at night and I said to Leslie, remember Cordero, that little seven-year-old Down syndrome boy in Mexico City begging on the streets. Who's remembering Cordero if we don't? Who's doing something about Cordero? You see, I have a weight in my life for my children. And if I come home and, and Leslie tells me something about one of my children and they're struggling with something, I tell you what, it's a weight in my soul. If someone picks on one of my children, oh, I mean, there is a weight that is hard to describe what that is like when I know of any difficulty my children are going through. Any difficulty. Well, who cares about Cordero? He's a little Down syndrome boy sitting on the streets begging in Mexico City. We don't care. We have four kids that we're already dealing with and cherishing. We don't have time for that. That's God's business. God's business is our business. We're his body. If we're not doing it, no one is. We are the expression of Ab. Some of you would say, I never saw Ab all growing up. I didn't know that this is the way he was. Why? Because the church of Jesus Christ wasn't functioning as it ought. We should be showing it everywhere. That's our job. We demonstrate to this world who he is. Remember Zella? That six-year-old little girl in Guatemala standing on the slave block being sold to those brutish men. Six years old. Sold as a slave. To be misused in ways that I would not want to describe here in this environment. Most of these little girls at six, they're sold at the highest price. They're the greatest treasures for those brutish men. They usually die around 11 or 12 because of the abuse upon their bodies. Who's remembering Zella? 
Remember Katokechi, that eight-year-old boy in Uganda today that was forced at gunpoint to kill his mother and sister and then enslaves the child soldier in the LRA? Who remembers Katokechi? Is he in our list of remembrance? Remember Emily, that little unborn baby sucking her thumb and kicking inside that little 15-year-old girl's womb, scheduled for execution at the hands of an abortion doctor tomorrow at 2 p.m. Does anyone care about Emily? I know someone who does. Whether we care or not, our Father in Heaven does. And if He cares, it's our business. This is the business of the body of Christ. Ab. The first labial sounds of soul awakening. When you begin to awaken in your soul, the first labial sounds are Father. The first word in the dictionary of the twice born. The first labial sounds of real Christianity. The first word in the hero's vocabulary. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Okay, this is the fourth reference to John 3.16. It's not just hope in our rottenness, but it's hope to actually see our rottenness transformed into a beautiful picture of his grace. But it's more than that. It's a commission to love because the very... Spirit of love, the very life of Christ has been deposited in us so that we can love as the Father loved in sending His Son. We can love with the same love. But what does that love do? When you are loving as the Father loves, what is the natural result in your life? Well, let me read the scripture. For, oh, I guess we don't have... This is a... What is this? This is a summary. This is the hope in our rottenness. The idea that what we have is not what we have. What we have here is not what we have there. The hope for our, for our rottenness. The idea that what he has accomplished is for here, not just there. The commission to love. The idea we have the sons, so we have the same love in us. And then finally, the commission to give. And the idea is God builds us to give our best. What did the father give? He gave his best. You know what we oftentimes hold back when it comes to dealing with the kingdom of heaven and our God? What do we hold back? We hold back the best. You don't give the best to this world around you. You keep the best for yourself. I mean, that's just the way it works. If you gave the best to everyone else, then they would get the best, and you would never get the best. That doesn't sound right. That's the gospel. You give the best of your life because Jesus Christ is in you. He has taken your rottenness and turned it into an incredible picture of his grace and mercy. And he has made you fit to give the best to those around you. I want you to realize when this starts happening to your fatherhood, when this starts happening to your Christianity, and you start giving your best in your marriage, you start giving your best to your kids, think about this. Very few of us are giving our best when it comes to fatherhood to our kids and our wives. We give our best to that which will increase our salary, to that which will increase our popularity rating at work. We want to be respected as men. We want this world to clamor after us and try and give us position, honors and fame and accolades. That's why we give our best to the world. And God says, forget the world. 
Love the way I love. God gave his best not to the world system that they would applaud him. He gave his best to the lowly, the dying, and the weak. Us. Us. CNN doesn't care about what's happening in this room right now. But God does. Fox News could care less about this message. But God cares. The things that the world overlooks, we're not news. But we are to God. Our Father cares. And where our Father is looking, we better start looking. He's looking here, and he sees us. And if we follow his gaze, you know what? We're seeing a little boy in Mexico City. We're seeing a little girl in Guatemala. We're seeing a little boy in Uganda. And we're seeing little Emily down the street in a little girl's womb. We are not deaf to the cries, and we're not denying the Holocaust around us, whether it be in our marriage, whether it be in our homes, or whether it be down the street, or whether it be across the world. We are here on this earth to demonstrate the nature of the Father. To be fathers to the fatherless. For God so loved the world that he gave. If you just stopped right there, that he gave. And you say, well, thank you, God, for giving. What did you give? It'd be fascinating to find out what God would give. If he loved so much, what would he choose to give? He gave everything. He gave the most precious thing he had. He gave his son. And I tell you what, when you're a father, that moves you at some level. When you begin to realize what this means, when we start talking about a new generation of fathers, a new generation of fathers, how do they behave? They behave as the father in heaven would behave. You know, I have a little six and a half year old boy. I love him so much it hurts I care so deeply about his life and every intricacy of his life I care when he's a bad boy and I want to see him find Jesus in every quadrant of his life and I will discipline him I will be consistent in my discipline because I love him so much and I take great delight in his little triumphs in his little moments I take great delight in his humor when he cracks a joke that might not be funny to anyone else I think it's great I love my son's laughter. I love to see him smile. And guess what? My son has been entrusted to me as a very precious gift. And may it be said of Eric, and may it be known by my son himself, to say, my dad loved so much that he gave me. And that he sent me into this world knowing full well that I would die. Knowing full well that I would be mocked. Knowing full well that I could be thrown into prison. Knowing full well that I could be tortured. He knew it. And yet he loved so much that he sent me. What's this new generation of fathers doing? We're building up the world changers. To send them out to turn this world on its head. It's not to just grow old with our grandchildren on our lap. It's to give it all up. To say, I'm here for a short season and I will pour myself into these children that this world may know that our King lives and there's only one means of salvation and it's Jesus Christ. This is a new generation of fathers. May we catch the vision and we may, may we not fall short of it. Fathers that train their children to go. Fathers that so love that they give their only begotten children to the harvest fields. Don't cling 
I know how hard it is. I live with this all the time. Told the Ellerslie students at the very closing, you know, we stand around in one big circle and we sing our final worship song. Boy, is that a hard day. Because I have to send them. I have to say goodbye. And guess what? There's a father's heart in me for these students. And every time, three times a year, we send out the basic. Three times a year, we send out the advanced. It's agony. But it's the right sort of agony. It's a healthy agony. If I wasn't sending them out, what do we have here? What do we have if we just hold on to it and we're some big commune? There's a reason for the world to look at us and say, what a joke. But we aren't about our comforts. We have a job to do. And we must send. And so we send and we send and we send. And Eric, if he can cry once a semester, it's then. I feel it. God allows me to feel it. It's like he's preparing me. And you know what happens? I look around the room and I can't even open my eyes because I see Hudson's face. I see Harper's face. I see W. Dewey's face. And I see little Avi Rose's face on everyone around. And I realize that's what I am doing for my children is I'm preparing them to go. I can't hold on forever. I'm preparing them to go. There's a story in Christian history about John G. Payton who left for the mission field Never saw his family again. And he had an intimate relationship with his father. His father had such a passion for missions, but because of certain situations in his father's life, he was unable to go on the mission field himself. But he covenanted with God. And he said, God, you take John. You take John. And I allow him to go into your hands. Use him in any way you want, but please make him a missionary. Give him a missionary's heart. Send him. And John G. Payton went to the roughest of places. But his dad, when it was all said and done, his son had grown up and his son had the passion to go. To go. I must go, Dad. I must go. I know you must go. These are the days where there weren't cell phones, weren't telephones, weren't telegraphs. No means of communicating. When you send, you send. They go. And so they had the tearful goodbye. And then John G. Payton began to walk. He had a long walk, and I don't remember what he was walking to, whether it was a port to get on a boat. I'm guessing that's what it was. And it was a long walk over the rolling hills of, I don't know if it was Ireland or uh, Scotland or England. It was one of those. And it was walking on and on, and he would look back, and his dad was walking behind him, wanting to cherish every last glimpse of his son. And I remember the description that John G. Payton had of it, that he kept walking and walking, and his dad made it to the top of a high hill, the highest hill around, so he could see his son getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And John G. Payton would just turn back around every few minutes, and he would see his dad still standing there. That's us. We cherish every last glimpse that we have, but we say goodbye to the things God entrusts us. For the glory of the Father. And I want you to turn this picture around a little in your mind too. And I want you to realize there's things in your life that you hold precious. Maybe it's not your children. There's things in your life that because you so love, you're willing to give them up. And I want you to be willing to go to that high hill and wave goodbye to them today. I want you to realize that you are here to resemble the face 
of Almighty God, the face of Jesus Christ to this world. You show them Jesus Christ, and you show them Jesus Christ well. For he so loved that he gave. And what he gave was no small offering. He gave everything. And the least we can do in response is say, all of it, every inch of it. So this is a commission to the body of Christ, and it's a commission specifically to the men in here. I want you to rise up. I want you to wipe the smirk off this world's face that is looking us at us as Christians as frauds, as fakes, as charlatans. And I want us to demonstrate to this world love. But not just the worldly sense of love and the sensual love, the licentious love, the love of the Father. The love of the Father, he cannot accept an unholy people. He's a just God. But he loves. And he is willing to do what it takes to remove the partition. And we're willing to do whatever it takes for those around us to have them see that the partition has been removed. May our marriages sense the change. May our children sense the change. And may this world sense the change that God wants to take place and do within us. Let's pray. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.